Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Jen, and this is the second episode of the new Wild Connection podcast. Today, I'm talking about glittering, glowing animals, what causes it, and how bioluminescent wildlife is sparking an invention that many of us may soon have in our homes. To help me today, I've also got Dr. Kenny Travullion, the curator of mammals at the Western Museum of Australia in Perth, Australia, to talk about bioluminescent marsupials. I'll put the links to Dr. Kenny Travullion and other information in the show notes, which you can find on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast. When you're there, you'll also find another piece of artwork I created for this episode. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. I've always been fascinated by other animals, but the ones that glow really pique my interest. Like many kids, I was taken with fireflies, even when I didn't know that they were sending secret messages with the specific light patterns they were flashing. More on lightning bugs a little later. First, I also knew that scorpions are bioluminescent, the technical term for glowing in the dark under UV light. We need a flashlight, but presumably other scorpions can see using the UV glow given off by the moon. They've got chemicals in their exoskeleton that are fluorescent and break down as they're exposed to UV light, which is what causes them to glow. Why am I telling you this? One, because scorpions are cool. And two, they're only really cool as long as they're not in your house. In 2018, when I moved to Tucson, I was vaguely aware of the scorpion in your house potential. I went walking around barefoot, blissfully ignorant for a few months until one morning, half asleep, I stumbled towards the kitchen in search of coffee when I noticed my beloved cat, Senor Antonio Botones, was behaving a little strangely. His nose was seemingly a razor-thin margin away from the floor. He looked up at me and then back down. I looked more closely and I saw that his nose was in fact perilously close to a scorpion. He looked back up at me as if to say, um, I really think this is something you should take care of. Yes, that is how he sounds. Before he could get stung in the face, I grabbed him and a shoe. I'm not proud of the fact that I killed the scorpion. Because like I said, I think they're spectacular. I didn't sleep for the next two weeks, convinced I was surrounded by scorpions. And everyone wanted to tell me about that time that so-and-so 
got stung in the neck while they were sleeping. I went to a hardware store and got a flashlight, a UV flashlight. Now, I must confess, when I got the UV flashlight, I had actually been on a date sharing my scorpion woes. And so I recruited this man to help me sweep my apartment for scorpions. We didn't have a second date, so perhaps this was a too much too soon situation, but we'll save that for another podcast. Anyway, at the time, he seemed gung-ho to CSI my apartment. We didn't find any scorpions, but I did see a few things that made me wonder what the hell had gone on in my apartment before I moved in. In fact, maybe that's what scared him off. Anyway, I used the flashlight every night, and I didn't find another scorpion in my house, which was kind of disappointing now that I think about it. So let's get going on bioluminescence. But before we do, I just want to remind you, you can get the show notes and more. And if you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. If you have time, also please write a review because that's how other people will find out about it. Okay, so I'm pretty excited to have the chance today to talk to Dr. Kenny Travoulion. Um, and, and I'm really excited because we're going to talk about bioluminescence. But before we get to that, uh, I'd love it if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do, where you work. Yeah, so my name is Kenny Travoyon. I'm the curator of mammalogy at the Western Australian uh, Museum. And um, my uh, job is um, to take care of the collections. So I take care of all the mammals in the, in the museum's collection and also do research. And my um, research background is in paleontology, so uh, studying fossils. Uh, but um, with this job, I'm supposed to be working on modern mammals, so working at um, new species of, uh, um, that occur in Australia. Fantastic. Now, I I'm always curious what leads people down certain paths, the careers they choose, and, and the specific interests. And so can you tell us a little bit about what led you down this path? And, and is it exciting working in a museum? It, it sure is. Um, so my, I was always fascinated with, with animals. Um, I, when I was, I was very young, actually, I was, uh, every time my parents went on a, a trip, um, they, uh, I, I would just be really interested uh, to the country we were going to. So one year we went to Egypt and I was fascinated with Egypt. And so I, after coming back from Egypt, I wanted to be an archeologist. And then we came to Australia. So I, I was born in France and, and raised there. Mm -hmm. And we came to Australia and we fell in love with Australia and the animals in Australia. And that's when I knew I wanted to work on Australian animals. And my parents decided to migrate to Australia and uh, which really made it really easy for me to uh, um, to study uh, Australian animals. And so I did my degree at university in Australia and um, started actually first working on, on paleontology, so looking at fossils, because um, uh, my lecturers at university really uh, uh, fascinated me about uh, the evolution of mammals uh, in Australia and how we have such different animals to the rest of the world. So I really got into the fossils because of that. And and then after that, it just, uh, when you finish one job, you apply for another, and then you eventually fall into uh, your current position, and you might be doing something a little bit different. So I still work on fossils a, a little bit, but I have to work more on the modern animals. 
Okay. So for you being in Australia and working in a museum is kind of like heaven. It is. It's like my perfect, like, everything came into place uh, exactly uh, to have my dream job. So I, I can't, you can't be any happier than, <laughs> than That's I fantastic. Am. That's wonderful. So another question I like to ask my guests is because this show, it's, it's about connection and really our connection with other species and with nature. And so I'm wondering, do you have a special way of feeling connected with wildlife or, or with nature? Yeah, I, I love going out in the wild, going to the, um, to the in the forest, looking for animals. Um, you just like observing everything around you. It's like it can be like some mushroom on the side of the of the trail. It could be some uh, uh, birds that are um, singing in the trees. Uh, anything like that. I also like to like um, take my kids to the to the zoo to see animals because in Australia you walk in the, during the daytime and you can't actually see any mammals because they're all nocturnal. So. If you want to see a, a mammal, you either have to go prepared to uh, go at night with a torch, or you simply go to the zoo or the or the park. Um, where it's usually a nocturnal house, so you can see the nocturnal animals uh, during the day um, moving around. So it's a, it's you get to see something that you wouldn't usually see. Right. Yeah. No, I know that um, I used to do some work at the Duke Lemur Center and with the eye eyes, and they have them and the mouse lemurs, which are also nocturnal and they have them on a reverse schedule so that they're active during our day, uh, but they think it's at night. So, which which is a really nice transition to the topic. Uh, there's been a bit of news lately on some Australian mammals, and that is that they're all out there glowing in the dark. Can you uh, can you tell us a little bit about how this discovery has come about? Yes, there was an American team actually that um, uh, we're looking at museum specimens of the platypus. So platypus is actually a monotreme. So it's uh, one of the three kinds of mammals that exist. So you have placental mammals like us mm -hmm. uh, that give birth to live animals. Uh, you've got the marsupials like kangaroos and koalas that uh, give birth to tiny little babies that then grow into the pouch. And then you have the monotremes that have, they lay eggs into a pouch and um, the baby develops into the uh, pouch. So um, this study, we looked at uh, the platypus and what we did, we uh, um, sh shown uh, some uh, UV lights onto the uh, skins of uh, platypus into the in the museum collection. And they worked out that uh, the under UV lights, uh, the fur and the bill of the platypus were actually glowing. So they weren't just reflecting purple light uh, as you would if you were just uh, shining the um, a normal torch, uh, UV torch at a at a skin. Mm -hmm. It was actually glowing uh, blues and greens, uh, which shows that uh, the UV is um, reflected into the um, range of lights that we can see. Okay, so now was this was this a surprise? Yeah, well, no, nobody even thought of doing that uh, to any of the Australian mammals. Um, it's been shown in other animals, like um, scorpions, on birds as well. Uh, but mammals, it's never done. It hasn't been very much at all uh, done. And uh, but um, showing that an Australian mammal was doing it, it kind of like opened up a new uh, area of, of research. So that got me actually 
after reading that um, that research, it was actually a colleague of mine that told me about it. I, I didn't know about it until um, she told me. So her name is Lynette Umbrello, and um, she found the, the article on Twitter, and she said, oh, did you see that article? And we got like, excited about it, and we went to the collection. We went to the arachnology department because they have UV lights to look at uh, scorpions. And um, so we borrowed their lights and we went to the collection. We turned off the lights and we didn't know what we were going to uh, see. Mm-hmm. It was a, a bit of fun. And um, we turned off the lights, turned on the UV lights, and basically I had a look in the dark. It was a bit like a night at the museum. <laughs> uh, everything was coming to life. <laughs> but here was uh, everything was glowing. <laughs> That, that sounds really, you know, it's funny because as scientists, you and I both know that sometimes we uncover things by accident. And so yeah. it, it seems like sort of a, 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 a such an exciting thing to, to go and not knowing what you're going to find, but thinking maybe you'll find something. And then what did you find? Who started glowing? Before we continue with more from Dr. Chavillon and find out who was glowing, it's time for a little interlude I like to call Kids Don't Try This at Home, The Wonder and Special Talents of Other Animals. Since I told you the story about scorpions, I thought it was only sensible to tell you about their arch enemy. Okay, they have many, but one special animal has an adaptation that renders even the bark scorpion completely defenseless. Bark scorpions are one of the most venomous scorpions, and they can be lethal to people. But to grasshopper mice, they're simply dinner. And in the ultimate insult to the scorpion, they howl just before they strike. They manage to evade the pain that comes with the sting of the scorpion by modifying the way they perceive pain. Without getting too deep in the weeds about the technical stuff, these grasshopper mice basically perform judo. In many Japanese martial arts, from Aikido to judo, one uses the energy and motion from their opponent against them. The grasshopper mouse can take the scorpion venom and use it to temporarily shut down the electrical gates of the sodium channels that transmit pain in mammals. We can't do that. This adaptation identified as amino acid changes, is also found in a few other species. The key is that it's temporary. Feeling pain is critical to surviving, not just for us, but also to grasshopper mice. And this is an adaptation in itself, one that we share with other species. There is, however, a rare disease in humans called congenital insensitivity to pain, And it's pretty disastrous when you're struck with this disease. It's a genetic hereditary disease and the mechanism is totally different from what we're talking about with the adaptation in grasshopper mice. In grasshopper mice, it's just temporary. They shut down pain sensitivity only when they're munching on scorpions. Okay, back to bioluminescence. So as a scientist, the first thing you do, you always try to reproduce someone else's uh, work. Yeah. So the first thing we did is actually we showed it on, on the platypus to see if we could reproduce the same uh, work that um, the American team did, and they did. So we had a, um, um, two platypus skins and also a platypus rug. 
Um, and uh, so we shone the light on that, and there was uh, growing exactly like it was in the pictures uh, that we found on Twitter. Wow. So it was pretty amazing. And then after that, because I work on bandicoots and bilbies, um, that was my next thing I wanted to try. It's like, are my animals uh, also doing the same thing? And um, the bilbies, um, the ears were uh, glowing uh, orange. So oh. if you don't know what a bilby is, it's a marsupial that uh, lives in deserts and they have uh, big ears like a rabbit okay. uh, and they're gray in color and they have a, a black and white uh, uh, tail and um, and they are uh, carnivorous so they will dig um, they dig in the ground to uh, get uh, invertebrates uh, in the ground and uh, so the, the ears were glowing orange and the tail was glowing um, uh, green uh, so it was really exciting um, at the time <laughs> And it, it's funny because some parts of it was the skin that was glowing and some other part was the fur that was glowing. So it was not all the way the same um, parts. That's really fascinating because, okay, so so there's so much to unpack there. But, you, you know, you mentioned <laughs> scorpions glow and, and now we're talking about skin and fur and, and the bill also of the, the platypus. From what I understand, scorpions have chemicals uh, in their exoskeleton that become fluoresc that are fluorescent, and then when you when they're when it's exposed to UV light, they they break down, which is what causes them to glow. So yep. do do we know if it's the same process in fur or skin or I don't uh, I guess uh, other appendages like the the bill? I suspect it is, um, but we don't know exactly what it is in it. So we. We'll We'll have to do a lot more uh, research about that. Um, so I've got colleagues at the Curtin University that actually, um, uh, they work in forensics. So they have all the light equipment um, that necessary to do this type of research. Okay. And um, so they're keen to help me with uh, that and um, work out really why uh, certain parts are going and exactly what what in that part is making it glow. Okay. So we can look at the chemical composition of of the skin or the fur and work out really what is happening. So this is what make to me this is what makes science so exciting. It's sort of a a, a happenstance sort of discovery which ne- leads to this new line of inquiry, which now you know is is the mechanism that causes it the same between. Uh, you know, scorpions and, and mammals. And I don't know about birds if they've, I think it was puffins for sure. They've figured out bioluminescence and their beak. Um, but I'm not That's sure right. have they've worked out what is causing the glow. You mentioned that a lot of these, uh, most of the mammals in, in Australia are nocturnal. And so it seems like there's this trend for nocturnal animals being bioluminescent. So so we've we've got platypuses, we've got uh, bandicoots and bilbies. Did the bandicoots glow? Yeah, so the bandicoots, the ears were, and also the undersides. So any part actually that, that had white uh, fur uh, was glowing. Wow, what color were the bandicoots? The bandicoots are generally brown on the top and then uh, white on the, underneath. Okay, and did they glow uh, red like the the bilbies or orange? So or? the ears were glowing um, greenish, uh, and the f- the white fur was just bright white. So 
if if you if you go um uh in a, a nightclub and uh, they have UV lights and yep. you um you can you'll see that uh, when you're dancing your white t-shirt will uh, shine bright white um, so that's that's what it looks like and also your teeth will uh, will shine uh, quite white bright as well so this is the same type here for any white fur it seems to have that reflecting the uh, white light very bright, brightly okay so it kind of sounds like there's an endless rave party happening out yes. in Australia, <laughs> in the wilderness. <laughs> Just a bunch of glow sticks walking around. Um, now, I, I, I know that we've now found out also wombats and Tasmanian devils apparently are bioluminescent. Is that correct? Yes. So the wombats were actually exciting. So um, uh, when we were lo looking for all the, uh, the collection, um, the wombats uh, were like shining um, green and it was like really exciting, but that was one species of them. And then the species uh, next to it uh, didn't at all. So the one that was glowing is called the uh, bare-nosed wombats. And they're the ones that are common on the East coast of Australia. And the ones that didn't glow are the um, hairy-nosed wombats and they live in more um, arid environments and they didn't glow at all. Two related species uh, uh, were showing completely different uh, uh, results. I don't know why one one isn't and why it uh, was, but uh, it's just really interesting uh, that we're doing that. It is so. So now we have two closely related species that have really different patterns, but then we also see different color variations. Whether we're talking about you know, scorpions, birds, or now mammals, we've got reds and oranges, purples, pinks, blues, and greens. And so that seems like another sort of layer of interesting questions about why they glow certain colors and what drives those patterns. Um, I'm curious about now the why they're glowing, right? This is always going to be the the interesting at least for me you know when we get out from the sort of mechanism and how they're glowing to kind of why it, it really piques my interest because i mean if i'm not mistaken wombats they can be predated on by eagles foxes and even dingoes is that is that accurate <laughs> um the young ones will um not the adults the adults are way too big oh okay uh, they, they, they weigh 30 to 40 kilos, so it's a bit too heavy for an eagle to lift. <laughs> oh, okay. Do they have any other predators when they're adults? Um, um, no, no, when they're adults, they pretty much don't have any predators. It's just when they're young uh, that they will uh, get predated on. Okay, because I was sort of curious. Uh, I know that eagles can see in the UV spectrum, which would yes. put anything that's glowing like that kind of at risk if it's nocturnal and walking around. But now I'm wondering if maybe they don't start glowing until they're adults. Well, that's a very good question. And I don't know, because um, I've only tested them on adults. Uh, so uh, it would be worth actually testing it on, uh, on juveniles and see if they, um, they also uh, glow. This really begs the question, why are they glowing? So that's where our conversation headed next. The UV part is not for the predator, but maybe for the prey itself. Right, so um, some kind of communication between each other. Yes, so it, um, a lot of uh, marsupials have patterns uh, on their backs, like the fur, 
Uh, there's white bands on the on, on a brown background, and like we don't know why this is happening. Like you would say it's camouflage, but at night, do you need camouflage? Probably no. not. <laughs> no. So so why do they have these bands, these dots? Perhaps it's actually to to be able to uh, see each other and know that from a distance. Uh, the patterns they can see is uh, one of their own species, and therefore it's actually safe to go towards that uh, animal. And so maybe it's easier for males to find the females, and then they can, uh, during mating season, they can actually find each other more easily. Because you can imagine in the, in the dark, it's pretty hard to see each other, and then you don't want to be walking up to the wrong species <laughs> and, uh, and mating with the wrong species. Certainly. It's certainly not attempting to. It might not be well-received. That Well, that's really fascinating, and now I'm wondering if there's there's a way to test that. So that that would be, this seems a, a tricky problem to solve so, unless you somehow mute the, you know, the, the fur so that it can't, glow and see if there's some kind of of challenge with finding or communicating i don't know what are your thoughts well there's been already some research on marsupial vision and uh, and the ability to see uv lights so there was a professor uh, called lynn beasley um she um she studied uh, the vis visions of marsupials and she worked out that um they could see uv lights um, she did it on only a few species, not not all of them, so, um, but she definitely showed that they had that that that, uh, that ability. And then she tested on um, on one of the species that um, of donuts. So donuts are little carnivorous marsupials. They look like mice, but they carnivores. So they'll mm -hmm. eat whatever they can uh, they find. So and what she did, she put them in the maze, and um, and basically only put, only put UV lights in the maze, and they were able to find their prey uh, with just the UV lights. They um, they actually used. She showed that UV lights was really important for them. Okay, uh, I, she I just tested that on the on the prey themselves. Uh, so that's probably one thing um, to go next. Okay, so it's interesting because. Um, in this episode, uh, we talk about also grasshopper mice, which eat scorpions. And so now I'm wondering if grasshopper mice can see the scorpions, if they can see UV light, and that's how they find the scorpions, which doesn't explain why the scorpions are glowing maybe for each other, but a predator that can capitalize off of that and use it to its advantage. Really neat stuff. So. So now I'm curious, you know, with all the discoveries that you, that uh, about bioluminescent mammals and and what's what you're uncovering with your museum specimens, how is this shaping or influencing kind of your future direction of research? So I'm meeting actually with um, this week uh, with um, our colleagues from Curtin University, and uh, we're going to discuss our next plan for for research, and we'll probably reach out to researchers around the world that are working on UV uh, as well. So we we don't uh, work against each other, but together, so we can actually achieve um, results uh, qu uh, quicker. And then also, my idea is to look to look at every species of marsupials and monotremes in Australia and see. Um, um, if there's a pattern uh, of like related species, do they all glow or is there like wombats? Some do, some don't. And then uh, then from there, we can move on to the next, like we can maybe um, can work with people like Lynn Beasley and work out um, 
uh, if in live uh, animals, uh, which ones can see that UV light and which ones can't. Now, I also know you've spent a lot of time working, and we're going to kind of, you know, switch a little bit, but circle back to the question of bioluminescence. Um, you've spent a lot of time working on uh, an extinct species, the pig, pig-footed bandicoot. Yes. Okay, so now I'm always fascinated with how animals get their names. So please tell us, how did this animal get its name? So it was first um, um, found uh, by uh, Major Mitchell. He was a, a, a government uh, surveyor that uh, went into the inside of uh, New South Wales. So just, just he, he, he traveled from Sydney up north and um, was trying to... Um, um, kind of map the land. Um, uh, so it was one of the first few people that was trying to do the mapping of Australia um, back in the 1800s. Um, but when he, he was kind of different from the others, he actually was quite interested in uh, in the animals that he was seeing. Um, and so he was reporting a lot of the animals he was seeing. And he, what he did is actually got uh, a drawing done of this pig-footed bandicoot. So it wasn't named the pig-footed bandicoot then because was not named, was unknown. But he got that drawing done and he got sent it to, um, back to the UK. And um, one of the uh, researchers there, Mr. O'Gilby, uh, he looked at that uh, drawing and um, he noticed that um, uh, the, the front feet of that animal had two toes, like a, a pig. Mm-hmm. So he decided to name it the pig-footed bandicoot um, uh, for that reason. Now, it's extinct, is it not? Yeah, so it went extinct in the uh, in 1950s. Um, and the fox is probably the, the main reason why it went extinct, because it's perfect size. It's about the size of a rabbit. Um, so it's really the right size for a uh, fox to be hunting. Are there any specimens left? Yeah, there's about there's about uh, thirty specimens in museums. So this is what I was researching um, uh, last year. Um, uh, so I did actually a few trips. I, I did a trip about four years ago around the world to look at all the museum collections that had marsupials. And then after that, um, I did a, a trip around Australia and, and looked at all the museums in Australia. And so on, yeah, there's about only about thirty specimens left. So. It's one of the most unknown uh, mammal on Earth, really, um, and it went extinct too, uh, too, too early. So when I was I was looking at it because I had noticed that there was two different types uh, of bandicoots in there. Um, so I was like w- wondering, like maybe there's two species in there, and we just always thought there was only one. And I did the research, uh, measured a lot of skulls and looked at skins. And then eventually found out actually there was definitely two species and we got even DNA out of them. So we had DNA from specimens from London and DNA from specimens in in Melbourne, uh, in Australia. And they turned out to be um, different. I'm wondering, do they glow? Well, I would love to, to tell you, but um, uh, the, the museum here, we don't have a, uh, a skin. So the, there's only a few skins and there's some uh, in Melbourne, in Adelaide, and then there's in, there in London, the rest. Um, so I haven't been able to, to get there and actually glow, uh, <laughs> make them glow. So I suspect they probably do, uh, but um, I, I, I haven't been able to travel. <laughs> oh, yes, I know. This is... 
this is creating uh, delays for many of us in exploring some of these really cool ideas. Well, you know, while I've got you, I mean, there's two questions I want to ask you. Uh, the first is, you know, about wombats. I've I've read because I have an upcoming episode that's all about it's called Better Out Than In, which is all about excretions. And I'm afraid the wombats made a little bit of news also because they apparently their poop is square. Yes, that's correct. Do you know why? So there was a bit of research recently that showed that actually it was the uh, the shape of uh, the intestines that was actually um, causing the poop to go square. Really? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> so we finally have an answer. It's the it's it's all about the shape of the intestines. Okay. And it's not happen. It's not happening really in any other um, animal on Earth. Kangaroos kind of almost are squarish. They can. But it's not as square as the wombats. It's like unique. <laughs> it it definitely is unique, and I am now going to have to investigate the shape of intestines. Um, <laughs> okay, so one last question, and then I know I'll let you go because I know you're very busy. You know, my last episode, which is the first episode of Wild Connection, the podcast was all about skulls because I'm not a paleontologist, but I have an affection for skulls. And I'm very fond of, if I happen to find them, taking them and keeping them. And one of the things I've noticed, and I'm hoping you can maybe help me out by answering this question, is that there's so much variation in skulls, but there's also some cases where the eye sockets are so big relative to the size of the skull. And even in species where maybe the eyes themselves aren't terribly big. Do you have any insight on this? Well, if there's going to be more space, I suspect it is for soft tissues. So it will be for muscles that are in that socket. Uh, so even though the, maybe the eyeball is, might be small, maybe uh, it's for allowing more movements. So maybe the eyeballs get able to move more to more complex uh, or faster movements. Uh, so that would be my guess. Um, okay. Are there any uh, patterns of certain groups uh, or, or taxa of species that have uncharacteristically large eye sockets? Yeah, usually it's for nocturnal species. It's like owls have huge eye sockets. Uh, anything that's really like a primates, like monkeys have uh, that are nocturnal, tends to have big eye sockets. So I suspect there's a, a big correlation there with nocturnal animals. And I, I'll show you when, uh, one of the fossils uh, that I've, I've seen um, uh, a few years back when I was traveling in Alice Springs. It's the opposite. It's actually the smallest eye socket I've ever seen. Really? And it's all, yes. Uh, and it's just bizarre. So it's this extinct marsupial um, that probably lived about, I don't know, maybe 10 million years ago. And it's uh, thought to be a, the equivalent of a marsupial tapir. And it's got these tiny little beady eyes. Like the, <laughs> the socket is tiny. And you're like, why, why does it have such <laughs> small eyes? And it's all, also, it's pointing forwards. Um, so usually, like, uh, something that's uh, herbivorous, they, uh, they'll be, the eyes are on the sides looking out for um, uh, predators. He is looking forward. So it obviously doesn't care about the predators. It's pretty too big. Um, 
has no predators and it's just focusing on one thing forward and it doesn't need much uh, uh, um, ability to see anything because it's probably eating on something that's pretty everywhere and, and obvious. Right. And, and it's just, just we're having the weirdest animal ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's funny because you, you know, you're right. Like eyes in the front, ready to hunt eyes on the side, ready to hide is kind of the, the, the saying. And then I, I realized I, I probably named my episode incorrectly and it should have been my what small eye sockets you have. <laughs> well, it has been so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and, and share not just what what other people and yourself are uncovering about about all the Australian mammals glowing in the dark, but your your research interests and and kind of where things are headed. Oh, the pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, while Dr. Travoulion is out there discovering new species and new species that are glowing in the dark, I wanted to just wrap up this episode um, by shedding some light on how biomimicry or, or sort of copying nature is helping us to generate more efficient LED lights. I don't know about you, but as a kid, I was absolutely taken with fireflies. It was magical to see the bursts of light popping all over my backyard. At the time, little did I know that they were sending coded messages, much like we used to do as kids with flashlights. It seems like fireflies are still inspiring us, but this time it might be by revolutionizing how we light up our own rooms. Dr. Stuart Shizhu Yin, professor of electrical engineering at Penn State, took notice of these tiny structures that fireflies have that allow them to actually project out more light rather than the light reflecting back on the insect itself or the firefly itself. The biggest difference is that the biggest difference is that in traditional LED lights that also capitalize off these types of structures, those structures are symmetrical. So they're similar on both sides. But on firefly lanterns, which is the light producing organ that's located in the firefly's abdomen, these structures, he noticed, are asymmetrical. And fireflies aren't the only insects that glow in the dark. There's also a giant glowing bioluminescent cockroach that has the very same pattern in the lantern. So I'm going to be doing an episode all about cockroaches sometime in the future, and, and we'll discuss this and some of the other amazing features about cockroaches, so something to look forward to. For now, scientists are using this information to help us generate more light with less energy. You can find out more in the show notes located on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. And please, if you're digging the show, subscribe and share it so others can enjoy it too. Thanks for listening, everyone. And tune in next week for a very, very Valentine's Day special episode, The Animal Pocket Guide to Dating. <laughs>